0: Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 3. There is an outline handout available on the back table if anyone missed that. And feel free to, to get up and, and take one. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-13. We're titling this sermon, Paul's Prayer for Reunion, Love, and Holiness. Paul's Prayer for Reunion love, and holiness. So Paul, as we're jumping back into 1 Thessalonians, has just finished uh, talking about his long thwarted desires to get back to Thessalonica, to see his people whom he he first established in Christ, who he loves, but Satan had hindered him from getting back to Thessalonica somehow. He's now down in southern Greece, uh, whereas Thessalonica is northern Greece in in modern terms, Macedonia. So he eventually sent Timothy on a mission. Since he couldn't go himself, he sent Timothy to see if they are still stable in the faith. um, If the church is still um, uh, steadfast and if, if they still remember Paul well and what he taught them. He wants to check on their spiritual stability. So Robert Cara in his commentary mentions here, Paul ends the section about Timothy's mission and more or less the first half of the letter with a benediction. This is a special type of prayer of blessing offered by God's authorized representative in which the representative asks God to bless his people. Often a benediction is included in in liturgical contexts, official worship. Numbers 6, 22 through 27 is the primary example. And in the tradition of that passage, note that virtually all New Testament letters end with a benediction. These letters with benedictions were probably written to be read, among other settings, at worship services. It hadn't struck me as much before as it struck me this time, studying that um, Numbers 6, 22 through 27 really seems to be a pattern for all the other benedictions, pronouncing Blessing. <laughs> on God's people in the Bible. And as Robert Carr mentions, so many of the New Testament epistles end with a benediction, very much on purpose. Some of Paul's epistles have more than one benediction throughout them. This is one of those places. It's not the end of the letter, but still he includes one already at this point in the letter. Here's the verses that just, that come right before our section today. Verses 6 through 10. For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So again, Robert Cara, after expressing his comfort in and joy over Timothy's report, by means of several emotional outbursts in chapter 217 to chapter 310, Paul concludes the section with a warm but more formal benediction in the tradition of Numbers 6, 22-27. This slight change of tone from the previous verses draws even more attention to the requests that Paul is making on behalf of the Thessalonians, and consequently, once again, stresses his love for them. Here's what Numbers 6, 22-27 read. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Compare that to our sermon text now, verses 11-13. through 13. Let's read that together. Verses 11-13 through 13 of 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, your notes will help you here, perhaps. The big idea... I'll just state it at the beginning, is this. Paul prayed to be reunited with this congregation, but also for their love to advance their holiness. So he prayed for two things. He prayed to be reunited with this congregation, but also he prayed for their love to advance their holiness. Their love to advance their holiness. Before we get too deep into this, just notice, as we look at Paul's requests, notice that Timothy's good report that he brought back did not make Paul complacent. It didn't make him just say, oh, okay, things are fine. Um, I don't have to, to do much for them anymore. They're doing fine. No. Timothy's good report gave him great rejoicing, but it didn't make him complacent. It actually energized fervent prayer. Paul was already praying for them fervently, but good news made him pray for them just as much. We should be like that too. Our prayers shouldn't just be emergency prayers when we realize, uh oh, something's really wrong now. We should per- fervently pray for God's people even when we're overjoyed that we're uh, in assurance that they're doing well in the Lord. Because we shouldn't take that, good reports like that, for granted. God must do that, and we must continually ask him to keep doing that. That's just an opening observation. But what were Paul's requests? Well, verse 11, reunion with the congregation after satanic hindrances. Remember, uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, he says, But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. But Satan hindered us. And so after those hindrances, those roadblocks set up by Satan, now... He's praying that finally those will all be taken out of the way so that Paul personally, not just his representative like Timothy, Paul personally can get back to them in person. And he prays that the Lord, specifically that our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, recognizing Father and Son both as divine here, may they direct our way to you. Leon Moore says the verb direct, that word direct, uh, rendered guide in Luke 179. It means to make straight. In this context, Paul is obviously, he says, seeking the removal from the way of, of the obstacles that Satan has put there. He's praying to God that he would make the path straight, clear the road for Paul to get back to them. John Calvin, in his commentary here, says, By this he intimates, he indicates, that we cannot move a step with success, otherwise than under God's guidance. But that that when he holds out his hand, it is to no purpose that Satan employs every effort to change the direction of our course. Calvin is saying, On the one hand, we can do nothing unless God allows it and clears the way. On the other hand, when God does stretch out his hand and clear our way, Satan himself can do nothing to stop it. That's why it's God we're asking to do this. He's the almighty God. And he can do all that he pleases. Such should be our attitude of trust going into prayer. Calvin also notes we must take notice that he assigns the same office to God and to Christ. As unquestionably, the Father confers no blessing upon us except through Christ's hand. When, however, he thus speaks of both in the same terms, he teaches that Christ has divinity and power in common with the Father. Again, we might just read right over that, but it's true. It's another example of the fact that the Trinity is not a doctrine just taught in a few texts throughout the New Testament. Um, The doctrine of the triune Godhead is everywhere assumed in the New Testament. And so it is here. Um, He's praying to our God and Father and our Lord Jesus to do this. But not only does Paul request a reunion brought about by God. Secondly, he requests overflowing love. Advancing holiness, verses 12 through 13. So again, as we, before we go into this deeper, Paul is asking for, for an overflowing love in their hearts that will advance holiness in their hearts. So it's God himself, the Lord himself, who is in control not only of circumstances, but of human hearts. That's why we pray to God, the triune God alone. He alone can do these things. And it's not just circumstances. God isn't, as some views of God would paint him, God isn't um, able to, to work circumstances around. But then when it comes to the human heart, he's hands off. <laughs> um, it's not that, Lord, we know you can do a lot of things with the circumstances, but we also know you can't violate people's free will and mess with their hearts. <laughs> no. No. God is the changer of hearts, as we saw again this morning. We have to believe God isn't just really good at, the ext- at moving in the external circumstances of our lives. He changes people's hearts, too. We should be praying for things at that level as well. Well, overflowing love, advancing holiness. First of all, it's an increasing love for the congregation, for one another, and for all people. Um, Again, the wording is, um, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, reminding them of the great love Paul and his associates had for these people. May the Lord make you increase and abound. It really has the picture of rising and overflowing, then, (laughs) in love. Increase and abound in love for one another, for your fellow brothers and sisters in the church, and for all—all all in this case, all really does mean all. I think <laughs> it's uh, all people. Now, why does Paul focus his his petitions, his requests, on love? There's a lot of things he could have put at the heart of his prayer. Why love? Certainly, there were a lot of other things he was concerned about in their in their doctrinal understanding and their practical living out of the christian life and staying true to christ but he focuses here on love well as matthew henry simply says love is of god and is the fulfilling of the gospel as well as of the law the end end goal of both the law of god and the gospel of god is love for god and for those made in god's image First Timothy 1.5, Paul said about, um, about uh, how he teaches both the law and the gospel in the church. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. But if we don't get to the goal of love, we've missed the whole thing, right? So that's the heart of Paul's prayer here. Remember, I'll just read one version of it from the Gospels. Remember how Jesus talked about the first and greatest commandment and then the second like to it. Mark twelve twenty eight. one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So the first and greatest commandment is to love God on a level we love no one and nothing else. In a way that we give all our being to him, heart, soul, mind, strength. We love no one else like that. He's in a category all his own getting that kind of love. But then there's a second command that's inseparable from that one. It's the natural outflow of that love for God. Then love your neighbor, not with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's idolatry. But love your neighbor as you love yourself. (laughs) Care for your neighbor just as much as you care for your very own being. And notice here in Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians, he specifically desires that the Thessalonians love people. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. Love for God is empty if it does not involve earnest love for the people made in his image. Um, again Calvin, he says he would have the Thessalonians abound in love and be filled with it because insofar as we make progress in acquaintance with God the love of the brethren must at the same time increase in us until it take possession of our whole heart the corrupt love of self being extirpated being done away with you know the scriptures right First John 4 19-21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Or in 1 Corinthians 13, we know this as the great text on love, where the Apostle Paul elaborates as he does nowhere else on Christian love. But he's speaking specifically of love for people. First Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13.1 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just a loud noise. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Then he applies what love looks like and he's talking about love for people. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So obviously, Paul is saying that without love for people, we are nothing. We we can have very good opinions of ourselves, thinking ourselves to love God so much, but if it's not tied to love for people, we're fooling ourselves. And he doesn't just say, "Love one another in the church." He doesn't just say love Christians, he says love for all. <laughs> There's no one in this world whom God does not expect you to love. No one. It will work itself out in different ways, in different contexts, certainly. You can love your brothers and sisters in a way you cannot love your enemies, right? And the enemies of the gospel. And yet you must love your enemies and the enemies of the gospel, I think this is the last time I quoted Robert Cara, but he was pretty good on this section. He said, In what sense is a Christian to love all? One answer might be that love is the disposition to seek the good of someone else and is not necessarily tied to emotions. And I would add, especially the up-and-down surface emotions. There has to be a solid, stable affection at the core of love, but yes, our emotions will go up and down, though we can still be acting lovingly, right? But he goes on, this love is rooted in God. It has God as its ultimate motivation. Also, a Christian will define the good of others from his Christian-oriented worldview. In many instances, a Christian's view of what is good for his neighbor will not match the neighbor's view of what is good for himself, like his need for salvation or concern for one's parents. End of quote. Of course, the world will tell us, you hate me. Even when we are loving them. Now hopefully we do love them. But we're not saying we do whatever the world tells us to do to show that we love them. We are saying we have to do whatever God tells us is loving towards people. But then again, sometimes we are spiteful towards people instead of loving toward them. And we can't fool ourselves either about that, right? Um... Love for one another and for all. But then Paul takes this a step further. He's asking for overflowing love, advancing holiness. So there's this increasing love, first of all, for the congregation and then for all people. But then there's an inner holiness that's established by that love. Notice the order the love, so that the holiness. If you look at the wording. Inner holiness established by that love. Verse 13a, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So that, the love is so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. And this is holiness of the heart. Get that. Holiness of the heart. He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. And And in the scripture, generally speaking, the heart is not just the emotions. It's the whole inner person, the inner man, as we call it. Who you are inside is your heart, scripturally speaking. Not only your emotions, but how you think also, and all that's part of it, right? So this is holiness of the heart. It's inward and practical holiness. Paul is not here talking about justification before God. These are Christians who've already been justified and thus they're forever justified. They've been declared righteous in God's sight, by God's grace alone, through their faith alone, in Christ alone. So justification grants us a perfectly holy and righteous standing, the, the standing which belongs to Jesus himself. But the new birth, which enabled us to believe and be justified... The new birth also does other things in us. It creates a new nature, a real holiness. (laughs) There's a real holiness put inside you when you are born of God, the scripture says. And then that real holiness progressively, there are ups and downs, but over the long haul progressively matures into a more consistent and far-reaching holiness. That's the Christian life. So, so even though no one even, even partially merits eternal life by their personal holiness, that's not what Paul's saying. Even though that's true, no one even contributes to meriting eternal life by how holy they are personally. Still, Scripture also says no one will see God without personal holiness. That's also true. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If we're striving for this holiness, he's not talking about justification that we already have. We are to strive for something without which no one will see the Lord. Now, of course, the doctrines of grace, as we put them together from Scripture, help us here, right? That all... All who are truly justified by faith alone in Christ alone will persevere in holiness to the end. There's a real change in us as believers, and God will keep perfecting that until the day we see Him face to face. And without any real change in our lives, of course, our claim to saving faith is a sham. But notice that Paul prayed for increasing love, again. So that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness. So the love proceeds and fuels the holiness. So the path of perseverance and holiness, until we see Jesus and then at that point obtain perfect holiness, that path is the path of love. You can't travel that road unless you're doing it in the context of Christian love. There is no path of lasting progressive holiness that is not the path of love. Whereas Jeff Wilson quote Jeffrey Wilson quotes Moffat, um, he says, No form of holiness, no form of holiness which sits loose to the endless obligations of this love will stand the strain of this life or the scrutiny of God's tribunal at the end. And that brings us. As we think of the end, that brings us to what Paul says next about holiness perfected at the Lord's arrival. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, that is in his presence, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints might be an adaptation of Zechariah 14:5, part of that verse. Which speaks also of the the God coming to earth. um, Really the second coming of Jesus Christ. It says, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Jesus will come again. This time in great power and glory. For heaven and earth to witness. Not a private thing. He'll be attended by all the holy angels and all his holy people. Scripture says he will come to judge the living and the dead. And Paul's going to, to go deeper into that in the next chapter. Famous chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. So we're not going to go that deep into it now. But when believers see Jesus face to face in that resurrection day, they will be perfectly holy, body and soul. Even those who have died already, they're perfectly holy in their spirits before the Lord right now. But they await the day when they have new bodies perfectly conformed to that holiness, right? Not corrupting, not corrupted and decaying in the ground. One day, body and soul, we will be perfectly holy as we view his holiness face to face. But notice the connection Paul assumes here between advancing in holiness now and reaching perfect holiness then. What do I mean? Well, what you do today to grow in personal sanctification... Another other words, we have for holiness. What you do today in sanctification actually contributes to your permanent holiness that will be completed one day. It's all part of it. Unless you radically change course, you are becoming now what you will be in eternity. Sinners who never repent, on the one hand, they are already hardening themselves in that depravity that will consume them for all eternity. Those without Christ. But repentant sinners are being transformed into Christ's glorious image today. That's a holiness that will arrive at perfection and unfading glory in eternity. But it's starting today. So, make it really practical. Real Christians don't ignore personal practical holiness. They don't don't ignore a true devotion and and conformity to God and his character. They don't ignore holiness until the day they see Jesus. Our fleshly logic might argue that, well, Jesus will certainly make us perfectly blameless and holiness one day, so why sweat it now, right? That's fleshly logic. But sometimes you get the feeling that some who think themselves Christians think that way. I'm good with God, but I don't have to work too hard at this holiness thing because it's going to happen anyway one day, right? So why worry about it now? We can just ignore sanctification until Jesus does the work for us, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. 1 John 3, 1-3 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him beloved. We are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as present tense. That's now everyone who has this this future hope who thus hopes in him purifies himself now as he is pure. So I think it will make more sense now to present, again, the big idea. Paul prayed to be reunited with this congregation, but also for their love to advance their holiness. We've seen Paul's requests. So now let's make sure we've understood their relevance uh, by asking ourselves some questions. First, Thinking of Paul's prayer itself, do we ask and trust God to change circumstances and hearts? Do we ask and trust God to change circumstances and hearts? How quick are we to go to prayer about those things? Or do we first go to people or to our own understanding to work things out and change hearts? And then if we figure out, oh, we can't do it, then we go to prayer, right? How quick are we to go straight to the Lord, knowing he's the only one who can do what really needs to be done in the end analysis? Do we ask and trust God to change circumstances and hearts? Number two, do we long to be with God's people and edify them, spiritually build them up, spiritually benefit them? Do we long to be with God's people and edify them? Paul longed to be reunited with the Thessalonian church so that he could further fortify their faith and encourage them in Christ. Do we have that same spirit toward each other or have we lost that drive and that heart? I, for one, speaking as your, as your pastor and fellow church member, I can say to, to you and all of you, no exceptions, My worst day with you is better than my best day cut off from you. All of you. And each of us should feel the same. Paul couldn't stand being cut off from these people. And we should be the same. Do we long to be with God's people and edify them? Third, do we value Christian love as the foundation of holiness? Do we value Christian love as the foundation of holiness? If love seems nice but irrelevant to holiness, you need to check your definition of holiness. Holiness is not, I know I've said this before, holiness is not spiritual germophobia or obsessive perfection for its own sake. (laughs) And neither is holiness purity for the sake of a smug checklist, like the Pharisees, right? Holiness is a devotion to God out of love for him and his image bearers. And then, yes, holiness demands purity. Cleansing from sin. But that purity just sets the table for loving interaction and fellowship in the context of love. Holiness is not I've cleaned my house perfectly, so to speak, uh, using house as a metaphor for my life. I've cleaned my life perfectly in my house. Everything's perfectly vacuumed. Everything's perfectly put away. Um, I've I've, uh, used sanitizing wipes on everything. (laughs) The table is perfectly set with the best china. Now, no one better come in here and mess it up. Holiness is, I've gotten this as pristine as I can so that I can welcome my God into fellowship and other people. So that I can love God and people. That's holiness. So that my sin will not get in the way of Christian love. (laughs) And yes, holiness is a separation. It's a unique dedication to God. You're set apart. And so, it is necessarily a separation from the world's ungodly ways. But you know, you can be somehow distinct from and separate from the world without getting closer to God, too. Can't you? You might just be an unloving snob. I know I have been in the past. Holiness rejects worldliness. Holiness rejects ungodly things even if they control society around us. That's what worldliness is. Worldliness is the temptation to do things because, well, everyone else does it that way. That's how everyone around me in the world thinks. That's what everyone else desires and chases after. That's worldliness. But holiness rejects such things because such things work against the goals of Christian love. But if you don't have genuine affection for and devotion to people, particularly the people in the seats around you here, don't be surprised if holiness doesn't work. Without love, don't be surprised if the outward actions that holiness demands are a chore. Kids sitting here um, who start to think, wow... Sounds like there's a lot of rules to being a Christian. Sounds like. Sounds like a chore. How could I ever be happy living life for God? Well, there are many things which Christians have to do, yes. But it's all because we love God and love his people. And once you're doing things out of love, like kids, when you do something for your parents because you love them, it's not. As hard as just doing them because I have to get this done, <laughs> right? If you're making a present for your, okay, switch it, spouses, if you make a present for your husband or wife, it may be a lot of hard work, but if you love them, it might not seem as much of a chore because of why you're doing it, right? Right? But without love, don't be surprised if you find yourself doing good Christian things while your heart is filthy. <laughs> so we have to value Christian love as the foundation of holiness, the foundation of holiness. And last question. Do we understand that God's love will drive us to be devoted to him together? You got to get love, but you also got to get holiness. Devotion to God. So again, I ask the question, do we understand that God's love will drive us to be devoted to him together? We can call a lot of lesser things Christian love because we have some level of appreciation or affection for each other. That doesn't necessarily mean we have the real thing that's going to drive holiness, right? Genuine Christian love, the love poured out by God's spirit in our hearts, will drive us to holiness, And not just holiness by myself in a corner. Holiness, devotion to God, together with the rest of his people. Notice how Paul looks forward to the day here in his prayer. He looks forward to the day when the Lord Jesus will come with all his saints, all his holy ones. Because then we will all share in perfect love and perfect holiness together. And that's the end goal. Paul always has his mind in the end goal when we've all reached it together as God's holy ones, his saints, that's what saint means, a holy one. That's already the goal right now. God is not just establishing my my heart individually in holiness. He's establishing our hearts in holiness, as the prayer goes. So let God's love drive you. Let it drive you to hang in there with your fellow believers. Let it drive us to cooperate and gather more sinners into this fellowship of faith. We're here not only to encourage each other in the faith. We're here so we have partners in the gospel mission. So we can pull each other into situations. For help in evangelism. That's why we're here, right? One of the big reasons. Let God's love drive us to share the gospel of God with those who don't know God and to help each other do that more effectively. Increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So let God's love drive us to suffer together, to pray for our enemies together, that we may truly imitate our gracious God whose children we are. We desperately need, need both love and holiness, um, partially because we live in a we may live in a time of unusual peace for the church, but that's not going to be forever. Uh, we need to be so bonded together that we can withstand greater storms than we've ever faced. What if, in a couple years? they start throwing some of you in prison. Or you start, everyone starts to lose their job because of some aspect of Christian faithfulness. Are we going to be able to withstand that? Because we already have the the love and the holiness there. (laughs) Are we going to be able to then help each other love those who are persecuting us? Love for all. Well, may God help us to, to grow in love and grow in holiness and in our prayer life, which is Tied up in all of this. These things are so intricately woven together. Paul prayed to be reunited with with this congregation, but also for their love to advance their holiness. And we would do well to pray that way and to live that way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that this is your word and not mine. Thank you that you've given us to each other as your people and as our brothers and sisters. Help us to persevere in love and in holiness and in our prayer life for each other and in our affection so that we want to be together helping each other. Help us for Jesus' sake. And as you do this work in us, please allow us to rejoice and glorify you as we see the fruit, not only inside our assembly here, but as more sinners are drawn to the Savior when they see the love we have for each other, as as you, Lord, declared would be the case. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.